2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, Paul says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that though through the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I didn't for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who had suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Therefore, we've been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I've boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. And Father, we just humbly ask for just the grace of God by your spirit's ministry to prepare our hearts, Lord. We want to have good and fertile soil within our heart now as you deposit the incorruptible seed of your word into our soul and spirit. So Lord, we pray, prepare each one of us accordingly and you know what that means for each and every one here. And as always, Lord, we don't want to hear wise or persuasive words of a man, but experience the demonstration of your spirit and power speaking things to our hearts through what you've spoken in your word. So bless this time. We ask together in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as we begin a new year together once again, I think people often think about changes that they would like to see, New Year's resolutions we call them, and yet I think there's an important thing we should be aware of, that there is a difference, a big difference, between thinking about change and actually pursuing change. A lot of people think about change and recognize they need to change, but there's a far smaller amount that actually pursue change and engage change and experience change. And that is a very important thing to remember. I tell you, one of the greatest gifts I believe that God has granted to us as human beings is the opportunity to and the power to change. Oftentimes, we overlook the tremendous blessing it is that God has given to us this thing called a free will, that he has given to us the awareness of this thing called repentance or change, turning around, what we often talk about. And it is, to me, one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us as human beings, that through exercising our will and making a decision— and then staying to that course and relying on the power of God that is supplied to us supernaturally to do things we could never do in our own human will or resolve, that we can overcome internal battles, struggles, bad habits, ways of life, and things that we're doing wrong, and that we don't have to stay on a wrong path. We may be on a wrong path, we may get off course, but the wonderful thing is that we can experience life change. And the church of Corinth was very familiar with this very reality, and they were a great testimony of it. Many of them had past lifestyles that were dominated by really sinful patterns. In the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about different types of sinful struggles and, and, and wrong life habits they were involved in. And Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed and sanctified and changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about how some of them had some really sketchy pasts, like a whole lot of us in this room. And yet the Bible says, this is what you were. 
This is what you were, but the Spirit of God's changed you through salvation. You're brand new people now. You're completely different. You were set free from life-dominating sins and things that were ruining your lives when you came to Christ. And yet, even as Christians, some in the church at Corinth beyond that had then even slipped back into some sinful patterns once again. They had regressed spiritually and gone back into sinful living and were living in rebellion to God's will and tolerating sin. And that's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, yet Paul challenged them over their error and their sin, and many of them then repented. They then turned away from that wrong way of living, turned away from a time of rebellion, and they turned back to God, and change happened, and they got back on track spiritually and responded well and restored back to living in God's will. And this was something Paul, as their spiritual leader, was rejoicing over, that he was celebrating, that he was super happy about. And this section that we're looking about, and as we have been looking at, Paul was and is sort of celebrating the recent life changes of many in the church in Corinth who had regressed and gotten off track spiritually, even as Christians, but who have now turned the ship around by the power and the grace of God and yielding their will. And Paul's describing in this section, really in chapter seven, of just how proud he is for them, that they made right choices. They, they did the hard things and they turned away from sin and got back into right relationship with God once again. And Paul had confronted their error and many of them took it to heart and they were doing really well now. And in this section, Paul's sort of celebrating that reality. Look with me as he goes on here in verse eight with this kind of backdrop. He says, for even if I made you sorry or sorrowful with my letter, no doubt referring to the prior letter, which was very strong in its corrective tone, Paul says, I don't regret it. Though he says, I admit, look what he says, I admit I did regret it in the past, the idea is, for I perceive that the same epistle or letter made you sorry, though only for a little while. So Paul acknowledges, and I like this here, he acknowledges that he questioned himself in regards to the initial sending of such a strong letter of rebuke and correction as the prior letter was. It was strong, very bold in its language. It was very confrontational in the sense of challenging them on their sin and the ways they were living wrongly. But Paul saw in time the important benefits that that strong letter had brought to them in the bigger picture. But he admits that when he first wrote the epistle or the letter of 1 Corinthians, he sensed that it was going to sting their consciences. And this is kind of what Paul's alluding to here. He says, I, I, man, when I launched that thing, I thought, oh, man, that's going to sting. That, that's really going to wound their pride to a degree, and it's going to land a heavy blow and because Paul's human, after he sent the letter, he acknowledges here in verse eight, he says, I admit, though, at one point, he says, I did regret sending it. So the idea is that when Paul wrote that letter with a very strong language in it, speaking the truth very strongly, he got a little bit concerned and he started having that second thought feeling where you start to regret after having said something or sent something or wrote something. And boy, doesn't it make you feel great how normal Paul was to understand because we can all relate to that reality that perhaps after you maybe say something very strong to a person because you genuinely believe it's the right thing to speak the truth in love, but yet after you say something very strong to someone, whether it's in a face-to-face -face conversation or maybe through a phone call or whatever, that human tendency afterwards, you think, man, I hope that wasn't a little too sharp. Uh, man, I, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I, sh I probably should have waited another day before I had that conversation. And, and we kind of start second-guessing ourselves because we start maybe just in genuine love thinking, oh, man, I regret that. I probably was a little too strong there. And we start questioning ourselves and regretting what we said. Or who hasn't done this before? Send. Oh, can I get that back somehow? Right. So whether it's an email or a text, we say something, we write something out, and then you have that human struggle. And that's what Paul's alluding to here. He says, I admit at one point, he said, I, I kind of regretted when I first sent it. But notice what Paul says here, which is very helpful in verse eight. He says, but though the initial regret happened, it went away when I saw the long term value that speaking the truth ultimately had in your life. He says, I felt bad initially because I thought, man, I hope I didn't really ruin that relationship or wound their heart. But he says, I don't regret sending it now at all. Right. Because he says, I realize, verse 8, he says, 
It ultimately made you sorry in a godly manner, he says, in such a way whereby it was only for a little while. The idea is it hurt for a little bit, but then it yielded something very fruitful long term. And what Paul's alluding to here is this reality that he says, look, it hurt for a brief time, but in the long term, it was kind of like a surgery. It's painful to get the surgery, but if it removes something cancerous that can harm your health long term, it's well worth the pain of the surgery and the recovery. And this is kind of what Paul's saying. Yes, I knew it hurt initially, but I realized for your long term health, it was much better. And so that brief season of pain, Paul says, that I caused you having to say those strong things, I realized that was well worth it because in the long term, it benefited you much more. Every parent knows that. Right? Our kids don't understand when you spank them and they say, this hurts me more than it hurts you, or it doesn't seem like that. You know, but we understand that reality. You don't you know, inflict pain upon your child, whether you're spanking them or correcting or disciplining them in some way because you're trying to ruin their life. You're doing it because you realize that momentary discomfort of inflicting some degree of correction upon them in a corrective sense is intended to benefit them long term. And so the tears of the moment or the pain for the moment is a fair trade-off because you realize if that gets something out of your character that would ruin you long-term, then that's a good thing. And I think this is a good reminder for all of us because when it comes to seeing a, a need for life change, maybe for somebody that we love, I think we have to, to some degree, in trusting the Lord, we have to at times be willing to not think about avoiding the painful process in the moment but think more about what will produce the best for long-term welfare in that person's life. And so maybe it does mean saying something that stings, but that pain or temporary sorrow may be a needed step to get ultimate recovery. It may be sometimes how God gives us the courage to see the bigger picture, to think beyond a person's present comfort. And, and this is kind of what Paul is alluding to here. But yet he saw, he says, I saw it made you sorry temporary, but it was only for a little while. So he says, I honestly, I don't regret it long term. But look what he goes on to say. Verse nine, he says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry or sorrowful, but that your sorrow led to repentance for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. Verse 10, he says, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So Paul here starts to now acknowledge. He gratefully indicates how he had observed that they had experienced, I guess we might fairly say, the right kind of sorrow over sin the right kind of grief or sadness over wrongdoing and how it had led to, he says, repentance or change. Paul says here in verse nine, I rejoice that your sorrow over your sin led to, he says, repentance. That term shows up here in verse nine and 10, this term repentance. And it is very, very, I believe, important that we understand biblically what repentance is and what repentance is not. Because it's a term that sometimes we become so familiar with in our Christian verbiage that sometimes I think we fail to really recognize biblically, and that's the word I emphasize, biblically what really is repentance. Well, the very term that Paul uses there in the original language, repentance, it speaks of a change of mind that would result in a change of behavior. The idea, it's not just second-guessing something, but then continuing down a path, the idea is that you have such a change of mind that it causes you to completely change what you're doing, your direction. It causes a complete change of behavior because you truly, sincerely have changed your mind about something. So you once thought about something in one way, your perspective was, it's okay to do this, but then all of a sudden you have such a change of mind that you now think about it completely different. And no longer is it okay to do it. No longer is it right to go down that path. You see it totally different. You change your mind. You realize and admit your mind prior was wrong. Your, your reasoning was incorrect. The way you viewed it was wrong. The path you were on was the wrong path in the wrong direction. And so therefore you have such a change of mind because you now see that's wrong and you see the right way. So therefore you forsake the wrong way and you start journeying down the, 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 just the wrong way, start journeying down the right way. 
And so if we were to just visualize that, the idea is that for a season of time, you were going north because you wanted to go north. And it was your preference to go north. And you thought it was okay to go north. And you thought it was the right way to go north. But then you come to the very clear conclusion, north is wrong. Whether I want to go north or not, north is wrong. Even if I want to go north, it's wrong. And it's a wrong destination down that path. I need to go south. And so therefore you make a 180 degree turn and you stop going north and you begin not turning away from one thing, but turning to the right direction and you start journeying south and you start heading in a completely different direction. And again, this is the idea, sincere change of mind and heart that results in a change of behavior where it produces a different way of living. It produces turning from a wrong path and walking now in a correct path. And Paul says here that proper sorrow over wrong thinking can lead to an actual change of a way of life when we truly repent and turn from error. And he describes, notice in our verses, verse 9 and 10, he describes clearly two different types of sorrow that people can experience over sin or wrongdoing. He mentions here the godly sorrow or sorrowing in a godly manner. Then he mentions worldly sorrow or, or the sorrow of the world. And Paul says in these verses, depending upon which type of sorrow we experience, over our sin or wrongdoing, that will determine the outcome of what we do. One sorrow brings regret, but no real repentance or change. And he says, yet there's another type of sorrow that brings deep remorse, and that translates into repentance or change. And he says it's important to recognize both exist. Notice, first of all, he talks about there in the end of verse 10 of the sorrow of the world. We might say worldly sorrow or the way that the world generally has sorrow over wrongdoing. And this is the way, honestly, that many and most in the world feel sorry when they do something wrong or when they engage in some sin because God has given to us all a conscience. To a degree, they feel sad and sorrowful. There's somewhat of a regret over wrongdoing. But worldly sorrow typically is rooted foremost in just being ashamed for what you did. Or embarrassed that you would do such a thing. Or the humiliation or the problem it's caused that's now causing you difficulty. It, it wounds a person's pride and they recognize, oh man, now I'm, this throws a wrench in the whole works. And now there's these consequences and problems. And so the remorse and the, the sadness and the regret, a lot of it is just rooted in self-pity. It's just rooted in a concern over, oh, this is so embarrassing, and now I got all these things I got to deal with because I got caught or I did this wrong thing. And, and it's a sorrow to a degree, but it's a sorrow that never leads to change. It's just regret I got caught or regret I'm embarrassed or regret I got problems now because I made these wrong decisions. But it doesn't produce long-term life change where a person stops the error because typically they just go back to the same insanity. And they go back to the same cycle of just repeating the same things again and again. And that's why he says in verse 10, notice, he says this worldly sorrow, he says that produces death. And what is death? Death involves two things. It means the end of something and death includes separation, right? When someone dies physically, it's the end of their life and, and it leads to separation from their loved ones. And so he says, this is the unfortunate thing. This is what worldly sorrow will ultimately result in. It'll have a degree of regret, but it never leads to change or repentance. So what it does is it causes death over time. It begins to kill the very precious and valuable things in our lives. It brings ruin even sometimes to the life of a person physically. Sometimes a lack of repentance, worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow is what has caused many people to overdose and end their life on drugs. We've all seen that. Many of our lives, some of them have all been touched by that. Where there was a worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow, but because there was never change, so sadly, those continual wrong decisions and wrong behaviors led to the end of their life and the pain and the grief that causes. And worldly sorrow can bring death as well and ruin and, and destroy the life of our relationship with God. And, and it causes ruin and separation of a healthy relationship with God if we continue to persist in a path of sin. And this false worldly sorrow also, sadly, puts an end many times to human relationships. 
Many relationships suffer loss and separation because of worldly sorrow rather than genuine repentance and change. He tells us the right form of sorrow in our same verses here, referring to it both as verse 10, godly sorrow. And he says the the sorrowing, verse 9, in a godly manner. So he's contrasting two kinds of sorrow. Worldly sorrow doesn't lead to change. That's not good. But then he says there is a right type of sorrow, a proper sorrow over sin, and that is godly sorrow in a godly manner, where there you're rightly responding toward your sin because there's a sense of reverence towards God. And you feel the weight as the Holy Spirit works upon your heart of, oh my goodness, this sin, this error, there's a deep sense of guilt and regret as the Spirit works upon you, and you feel sorrowful because you feel so saddened that you did such a thing to God, that you offended your Creator, that you wounded the heart of God by your rebellion against Him, and that you did such wrong that caused harm to people that God loves. And it's a completely different thing because the remorse stems from a degree of accountability to God, how your error or sin is something that caused offense and hurt towards God and people that God's created and put into your life. And so this becomes a situation where the person isn't concerned about their own self-pity of, oh, I'm so embarrassed or now these consequences. This is a sorrow where all the person cares about is I just want to be right with God. I'm just so sorry what I did, and God, I made such a mess. And there's this direct confrontation that happens between them and God in such a way where they have a broken heart, a truly contrite heart, and they see it as wrong because of what they've done to God and to others that God's put into their life. And their spirit is truly broken, and they're grieving by the power of the Holy Spirit working in them over their sin. And their highest concern really over anything else is just to change. They don't even care about the consequences. They don't care about the shame, the embarrassment. They'll embrace it completely. They just want to be right with God. That's their chief concern. And he says here that this godly sorrow leads to, notice he says, when you sorrow in a godly manner, he says it leads to no loss. The idea is that, yes, when we sin or we do what's wrong, when we have godly sorrow and we want to change, Yes, we may to some degree, I'm not going to diminish, we may lose some things circumstantially because we do reap sometimes what we sow and consequences are real. We may even lose to some degree a level of relationship depending upon what happens or lose the trust of another person. But what God's saying is that when you sorrow in a godly way and you pursue life change, you're not going to lose the greatest thing of all. And that's right relationship with God. Because that's the chief concern of the person experiencing godly sorrow. God, I just want to be right with you. I don't know how it's going to work with losing this or losing them or losing this person. But God, if I can just put my head on the pillow at night and know the one thing I've gained and haven't lost is I'm right with you now. And that's the greatest treasure. And this is why he says godly sorrow will cause a person to suffer no loss. But notice he says what godly sorrow produces Verse 10, he says it, godly sorrow produces, there's our word again, repentance. So it yields the fruit of change. And again, what's repentance? A change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. And he says, this is the difference. Worldly sorrow, it just leads to further destruction because it's not going to lead to change. But godly sorrow, because it leads to repentance and change, leads to a life truly being set free from a path of error and no longer going down a road of ruin. And it's a proper sorrow from responding right to God in light of our sin in God's presence. And sorrowing over sin in God's way is a a pathway that will be painful for a time too. There's no getting around that. But the difference is, God, I will embrace the pain, do your surgery as long as it brings deliverance. As long as it changes me, God, as long as I don't ever have to go that way again, Lord, I want the better way of living in a healthy and a right relationship with you. He says in our verses here that this godly sorrow produces repentance or change leading to salvation. So Paul is wanting these believers here to realize that's the end result of this sorrow, not death, but salvation. Now, let me say here, keep in mind, Paul is writing to a group of, of Christians. He's writing to the church at Corinth. 
So to a degree, when Paul says godly sorrow of you over your sin as Christians will lead to salvation, I don't believe Paul's alluding to, well, you've lost your salvation because you erred in sin a little bit and you've got to regain it. I think Paul's using my personal conviction. You're free to disagree. I think Paul likely here when he uses the term salvation is talking more along the idea of what salvation brings in the sense of deliverance, of being set free once again. And I think Paul's alluding to this idea of how sometimes, though we are saved eternally from our sin through our trust in Jesus Christ and positionally we are saved, I think all of us to some degree that sometimes periodically we need God again to kind of rescue us from ourselves, to save us from our own sinful tendencies and paths that we deviate back off at times when we wander a little bit as sheep and have to be brought back to the fold. And the benefit is Jesus said, if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And so Paul's saying here, look, it's not God's intention. So therefore, the wonderful thing is that if you and I are willing to repent, even as Christians, as the church at Corinth needed to at this point, many of them, he says the wonderful thing is it will lead to a saving, delivering, transforming experience where the sun will set you free from the struggles, from the sinful tendencies, from the habits Because the word of God is very clear that as a Christian, we are not to live any longer controlled by sin. That was our past life. But the Bible teaches very clearly that for the child of God, we are to live in victory over sin and not to be chronically defeated by it or to be in bondage or ruled over by it. Paul in Romans chapter six speaks of this, how through our union with the life of Jesus and when we submit to the power of our Lord and his resurrection strength, Paul says this, that he gives us power to overcome sin and to live in a new way. We have been freed from sins, listen, rulership, to control our lives as it once did. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires, for sin shall no longer be your master. See, this is what the word of God says. Sin may still trip you and I up once in a while as a Christian, but it should never become our master. We should never find ourselves ruled and controlled and dominated because there's victory through Jesus and we've been set free from that domination and mastery. Might have been that way before we were saved, but as a Christian, that power has been broken and we now can live in victory. We can live in triumph and so we shouldn't find ourselves enslaved to certain sins. And if as a Christian this morning, you are living enslaved to a certain sin, I tell you that is not God's will and nor do you need to believe the lie of the devil that you need to continue in that. You need to believe what the word of God says. There is victory and deliverance in Jesus. Don't buy into this, con- oh, that's just always gonna be my Achilles heel as a Christian. I mean, it's just, that's just my thing, man. And, and, and God loves me and I know God forgives me and I say sorry every time I do it. Well, I understand that. But I'm also telling you, you're buying into a lie of the devil and the weakness of your flesh. And ultimately, you're abusing the grace of God because if God says sin's not supposed to master you as a Christian, it's not supposed to be mastering you. And there is freedom and victory that God wants to give to us. And Paul says, if there's godly sorrow and genuine repentance, he says deliverance and salvation can come even to the Christian where we can be set free from our own sinful tendencies. And sometimes we do regress spiritually. And I think it's why we need to know this is available to us. Now, in a secondary sense, I don't deny that same principle that godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation. In a secondary sense, that's true for every unbeliever too. Because sadly, many people who are unsaved are experiencing worldly sorrow over their sin, right? And so they feel a degree of sadness. They feel a sense of guilt inside of their life. And what the devil wants to do is keep people who are unsaved just chronically experiencing worldly sorrow because then they'll just do things to sort of compensate their conscience. They may get a little religious and they try and use religious activity to make themselves feel better about the wrong way they're living in relationship with God. And all that's doing is numbing their conscience. And what God wants is by the power of his Holy Spirit to bring godly sorrow and brokenness over their soul in such a way whereby they realize I need change, but I can't change myself. And they turn to Jesus and they're saved and delivered from their sin. And they're set free and experience what it means to be a new creation in Christ. So there are these two types of sorrow the Bible alludes to, worldly sorrow 
and godly sorrow. And we see these different types of sorrow even portrayed in Scripture. Peter and Judas both walked with Jesus. They heard the same sermons. They had the same opportunities. And both of them failed the Lord. The Bible says Peter denied the Lord. And when Peter denied the Lord, thankfully, he experienced godly sorrow over his sin because it in Peter's life led to repentance. Peter humbled himself and he was broken and he turned back to Jesus and Jesus worked in his life, forgave him and even restored him and used his life once again. Judas betrayed Jesus. But the sorrow that Judas experienced over his sin was not godly sorrow, it was worldly sorrow. And instead of changing and repenting, Judas instead selfishly chose to kill himself to escape and make it easier for his conscience instead of navigating the difficulty of processing his own mistakes. Two completely different outcomes, depending upon how a person sorrowed over their sin and their mistake. Well, Paul was so glad that they were sorrowing in a godly manner, and he knew that was the case because of the evident fruit he could see in their lives. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, for observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear and vehement desire, what zeal and what vindication he says, in all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So notice, Paul in verse 11 here sort of gives, you might say, I guess, a list of some measurable evidences that accompany genuine repentance, biblical repentance, Holy Spirit-directed you know, repentance from God's viewpoint. I'm so thankful the Spirit of God gave to us verse 11 because it reinforces that repentance, true repentance happening in a life, is something that is evident and observable. It's something that's measurable. Repentance, understand, folks, is not necessarily something that we declare. It's not even something that we discuss. Oh, I repent. I'm telling you, I repent this time. You don't have to tell me you've repented. If you've repented, I'll know you've repented. I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about it, that we shouldn't confess our trespasses, you know, pray for one another that we can be healed. But what the Bible teaches us is repentance is something that I do. It's something that is seen. It's not something that's spoken about. It's something that's seen, that's evident and observable. Paul uses that very term. Look at it in verse 11 for, I have it circled, observe. Paul's saying we can observe. That's how we know you repented. We can tell. That you had godly sorrow because we said we can observe certain things that mark and display your repentance. It's observable, evident. Matthew 3, John the Baptist declares what? Bear forth fruits worthy of repentance. Notice repentance has certain fruits. It bears fruit. It's evident. You can see it. We're told in Matthew, or Acts chapter 26, turn to God and do works representing repentance. So again, the word of God teaches us that repentance is revealed by outward observable evidence. And here in verse 11, Paul says, I can tell because I can observe. And then he lists off a things that he was observing. Now, I bring this to your attention because these are things the Holy Spirit gives to us, I believe, as Christians, to be able to keep our own hearts in check when we from time to time need to repent from something. This is one of the ways the Holy Spirit says this and how you can tell, Tony, if you've genuinely repented or if you're genuinely in a process of repenting. These things will begin to manifest themselves in your life. You can see them. And I think also it's here for us as well as we evaluate the sincerity of another person's repentance. Someone maybe who we love or we're connected to and they say they've repented or they want to repent or we're trying to see if they've genuinely repented well, there's some observable fruit that we can look for to see if there's sincerity behind that. God tells us by the inspiration of his spirit, here are some observable things. When a person is truly repenting, first of all, verse 11, look what he says, what diligence it produced in you. When you and I are genuinely repentant, we will be very diligent about working hard to change. There will be a laser focus 
that comes into the person's life who is trying to repent, whereby they will not be casual about change. They won't be apathetic about change. They will be like the most diligent worker on the job site, laser focused on my primary goal in life right now is just a change. And this thing that needs to change or this area of my life that needs to change, there will be a diligent persistence of focus, a, a carefulness in such a way whereby they will put in whatever effort they need to succeed. That's how diligent they will be. There will be this idea, there is nothing more important in my life right now. I refuse to be lazy over this. That's what kept me in trouble for so long. I am laser focused and I'm going to work at whatever I've got to do. I will sacrifice and work hard. I've got to change. And I don't want to go back to that old way again. And he says, this is one of the things. There'll be a diligence where a person becomes very serious about wanting to turn away and walk that different course. He says, secondarily, another observable evidence or fruit of repentance, when it's true, he says, verse 11, notice what clearing of yourselves. Now, I think that could refer in two ways, where the repentant person wants to and is willing to do whatever is necessary to get themselves clear from that sin controlling their life anymore. And so, therefore, whatever's required to get clear from the control of that sin over my life, I will do whatever I got to do to get clear of that. I just don't want it taking control of me and I don't want it regaining control of me. So whatever I got to do to get clear from its grip over me, I'm doing it. Whatever it requires. Radical things. You know, Jesus talked quite radically, didn't he? He said, if your hand offends you, just cut it off. Whoa, that's radical. Well, that's the concept there. I don't want this hand keeps getting me in trouble and I so want to get out of trouble. I don't care if it means hurt or suffering loss. I'll lose something, whatever it takes. I just want to get clear. I just want to get clear from this thing controlling me anymore. And I think another way this could apply as well is a willingness to endeavor to do whatever it takes to clear things up that we've messed up. What clearing of ourselves. And you can really tell when a person is genuinely repentant in their heart because they will be willing to do whatever it takes to clear up what they've messed up. And they will diligently work at that, embracing and addressing whatever it takes to clear up consequences or problems, to clear up messes, to take responsibility, to make things right, to atone for their errors. It's a clear evidence. When a person begins to do that, you can see their heart is genuinely repentant. He also mentions going on a third thing in verse 11. He says, what indignation it's produced in you. I like that. What indignation? A repentant person will have a degree of healthy and proper anger in a couple ways towards themselves. You'll find when a person is repentant, there's a degree of indignation toward themselves. I can't believe you would be so selfish and do that to themselves. I, I, I can't believe you would let yourself. And there's a degree of healthy indignation, anger toward yourself. I can't believe you would do that. There's a degree of indignation, I think, towards Satan, having been taken advantage of and manipulated. There's a part of you that kind of like a, a bully in the, you know, the, the school year. I can't believe I let you do that to me. I can't believe I let you deceive me like that. I believe there's a degree of indignation as well in repentance that should come towards that particular sin or struggle. Maybe that caused you the heartache and problem and, and life-dominating ruinous behavior where you find yourself, again, not being apathetic, but you look at that sin in such a way where you despise it. You're indignant towards it. Why? Because it ruined a part of your life. And so that particular sin, you, with indignation, have a, have a passionate anger towards it. Because you see, that ruined me and that ruined things in my life. And I think when people become genuinely repentant, especially over a particular area of sin of their life, it's almost as if they become the best people to, to, to do battle and war against that sin. Because they hate it so much because they see what it's done in their life that they'll do anything they can to get in the battlefield and keep it from ruining the next person's life. And they become some of the greatest you know, champions. They're sure to shut down the bully of that sin. You might have beat me up, but I will not let you do that to someone else. And sometimes this indignation towards that particular sin can serve a very valuable benefit. He also mentions another aspect of repentance is not just indignation, but look what he says, what fear. Your translation may say, what alarm? The idea is you become afraid of the power of the ruinous effect of that sin. 
And to have a degree of fear over your own sinful flesh or or maybe recognizing the power of a particular area of sin to control your life because it once did, and you look at it in a degree where you realize, man, the potential of that to ruin, I've experienced it firsthand. And so that area of sin, that terrifies me. But see, that's not a bad thing because to be afraid of your flesh and afraid of a particular area of sin will do one thing for you. It'll keep you really far from the edge. You won't go anywhere near the cliff. Other people may flirt with the cliff, but not you. You're terrified of that sin because you know what it once did to you in your life. And so in a great way, having a fear and an alarm over a particular power of a certain sin or maybe just your own potential to indulge that sin, it will protect you. It will keep you in that repentant heart where you turn away and stay away. He also mentions what vehement desire and zeal. Again, the idea there is just a strong passion, a burden, a longing to want to make things Right, where again, vehement desire and zeal, it speaks there of, again, there's not, there's not an apathy. You know, I become very concerned when people express they want to change or express they're going to change, and then I just see an apathy. And everything else is so important. Well, that's still important. They got time to do this and time to do that and time to do this. And I'm thinking, I don't see much vehement zeal about I need to change. Because see, when you genuinely realize that repentance is necessary and you want to repent, I'll tell you one thing that will have a vehement zeal and desire that I look for is that they get vehemently zealous and passionate about God. Because if you've been struggling, it's because you've not been in right relationship with God, and I don't see how you think you genuinely want to change if you're not vehemently passionate about, I need God bad in my life. And anything I can do to get God's help and seek God, that's an indication that that person realizes I need God's help and that passion towards God should be there. And I think that passion as well towards other people and wanting to amend relationships should be another strong passion in their life. Paul also says finally here, what vindication? And the word vindication speaks of making things right. And so again, this is another evidence of the truly repentant. There's a desire in their heart to make things right. We might say to make restitution, not just to change, but hey, I gotta make things right. And so this is something Paul says. Now, notice what he says at the end of verse 11. Uh, I like the way he concludes this little statement of some evidences. He says, in all things, you've proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Notice, proved yourselves, proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Repentant people will prove themselves. It will be a process, but over time, they will prove themselves to be repentant. They will demonstrate. The idea is there will be proof that's measurable. It looks like something. And proving yourself when you are repenting, proving myself when I'm repenting over something, that's a process. It's not, I declare today I'm going to change. And then all of a sudden, come on, I said I changed. You've also said that seven other times. If you prove yourself to be clear in this matter, that's a whole other thing. But there is this process. And look, that's something that we have to realize. Depending upon what's happened, it takes sometimes different amounts of time. And so we have to be committed in humility to depending upon the process to let us prove ourselves out. We have to remember forgiveness is one thing. But healing, restoration, proving yourself to be clear of something, if you've genuinely changed, that is a process. And sometimes it's an important process to regain trust, to allow healing to happen once again, and to work in a way whereby we realize, okay, what has happened is in essence this. You know, if you've done something and your sin has caused harm to other people, it's like you were in the driver's seat, they were in the car, and you consciously made a decision to drive them into a brick wall. And they all got injured in the accident. They said, well, I mean, it's been five weeks. All your bones are healed. Now you're not broken anymore. Trust me. And they're saying, yeah, my bones are healed. But I have this really bad video in my head that I can't get rid of, of you driving us into that brick wall. And I need a new video. And maybe over time, as I allow you to prove yourself to be clear, maybe they can get some new video footage. And eventually they start to heal emotionally. But we have to realize this is sometimes a process of what has to go on in people's lives. Now, let me say this on the other side of that. 
If you're the person who's been hurt or victimized by another person's sin and you have the bad video playing in your head, listen, the same way you can tape over other videos, God can, God can deal with those thoughts. So I want to caution you. Yes, there is a process, but by the same token, when a person has clearly proved themselves and continues to prove themselves, there comes a certain point when you, in trust not of them but of God, have to open your heart and trust God and not hold them as a hostage over their past their whole life long because that's not fair. God doesn't hold people hostage forever when they make mistakes, so we really don't have a right to do that either, especially if they prove themselves, if ultimately they prove themselves to be clear. Paul now gives some concluding remarks here to bring his comments to closure, and the goal really, you'll notice as he finishes these concluding remarks, is to just help them to move forward. He says, verse 13, therefore, although I wrote to you, he says, I really foremost didn't do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, who had committed sin, nor really for the sake of him who suffered the wrong, the one who was hurt by sin. But he says, my main goal was that our care for you in the sight of God might appear. So Paul says, my chief goal in all of this correspondence was that our care for you, both parties, the, 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 the sinful person who made the mistakes and the person who was hurt by sinful mistakes, he says, we just wanted our care or our love to appear. Now, why? I think for this reason, because Paul understood that love is ultimately what triumphs whenever there's sin, whenever there's hurt, whenever there's wrongdoing. That love becomes critical because the power of God's love is what can heal and forgive and resolve many wrongs. That's why 1 Peter 4 says, above all, have fervent love for one another for love covers a multitude of sins. And so love becomes so predominant and so important. Paul goes on to say, verse 13, therefore we have been comforted in your comfort and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So Paul indicates how when Titus, as we've talked about, reunited with him and brought report back to him, hey, Paul, they responded well. People there have changed. They've repented. They're doing really good. The fact that those in the church were, who were once not doing well spiritually had repented and were now living right and life change had happened, this, Paul says, brought him exceeding joy. Again, is as their spiritual leader, it, it rejoiced his heart. And this reminds us that when we make good choices spiritually, it doesn't just benefit us. You know what else it does? It really blesses everybody else around us because they can celebrate. Man, it's so great to see you changed. It's so wonderful to see that you're on the right track now and they can celebrate. And notice at one time, these Corinthians, when they were living selfishly, they were draining everyone around them. But now look what Paul says of them. He says now, the end of verse 13, he says, now you, you have refreshed the spirit of Titus. And I love this because this is a wonderful thing to see. Because they let God bring change in their lives, those who once were very draining because of their selfish behaviors are now actually doing the exact opposite. Now God's working through their life and they're refreshing other people. They've gone from being a burden to being a blessing. And what a wonderful thing that is that those once causing a burden through getting right with God can sometimes become the greatest blessings to other people and begin to be used by God in wonderful ways. Paul says, verse 14, for if in anything I boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed because as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. So Paul was so encouraged. He says, when Titus was going, he was a little apprehensive. But he says, I knew it was a mess there, but I told Titus, just trust me. And he says, I started boasting about you. I, I really believe they're going to respond right. Titus, bring the letter. I know it's going to be tense, but I believe they're going to do what's right. And Paul says here, I am so happy to be able to say that our boasting to Titus was found true. And what Paul's referring to is this reality of what 1 Corinthians 13 said, that love believes all things and it hopes all things. Paul said, when I sent Titus there, he didn't have much hope for you to change. But Paul said, I told him, Titus, I believe they can change. Titus, I'm hopeful that by the power of God, they'll, they'll change. They'll turn it around. And this is a reminder what really our heart should be, that with God's love working in our heart, we should always believe all things and hope all things. 
Hey, there are people in our lives that we look at and maybe they're in a situation or spot and we struggle. I just, I'm having a hard time believing they could change. Don't. If they're still breathing, they can change. By the power of God, you keep, even if they don't believe. You know, I've said to people before in counseling situations, even though you don't believe you can change, I'm going to believe you can change. So while you can't believe it and you feel so bad about yourself, I'm going to believe that you can change. And I'm going to hope that you can change because God can change people. And this is what Paul is alluding to here. Verse 15 and 16, he concludes in saying, And his affections are now greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received. And Paul says, as you became obedient and did what's right, he says, you earned Titus's respect. He loves you all so much more now. And it had a lasting impact. Why? Because they made the hard choices to take what was wrong and transition it into something right. And Paul says, this made Titus fall more in love with all of you and have a much greater respect towards you. Because oftentimes, let's be very candid, many a times people are not willing to do the hard thing to make things right. And so when somebody does, that's powerful. And it increases our respect for people. It deepens our bonds for people when we see them make things right that were once wrong. And I tell you something, some of my greatest spiritual heroes in my life are people who once were stuck in sin or fell into sin, but they responded with godly sorrow and God turned their life around and he not only restored them, but he's using them again and it's wonderful to see. And I have respect for them. And there's something very powerful when you journey through that process with a person and you see them make those right decisions. Paul ultimately says, I rejoice, verse 16, that now I have confidence in you in everything. So Paul says, did I once struggle with trusting you at one time? Did you burn my confidence and trust between? Paul says, yes, but now you've regained my trust. And Paul says, now I have confidence in you. He reveals here that it's possible to restore trust, to restore confidence. If both parties are yielded to the Lord, even when confidence and trust is ruined and burned, if there's true change, confidence and trust can be restored. Where does that happen? Well, let me tell you very simply. If you're the person who's made mistakes, here's your number one priority. Change. Change. Don't talk about it. Change. Deal with it biblically, confront it honestly, and let God bring his power and bring change. And you pray and trust God to work on the hearts of other people. And by the same token, if you're someone who's been wounded by that, never stop diminishing the reality that if they address it properly, they can change. And they should have the freedom to regain your trust and your confidence. The church is a place of broken people, but it's a place where broken people can be healed and restored. You know, in 2022, may this be a place where we celebrate changed lives. Wouldn't that be a really great thing? Let's stand together. Let's pray.